we're, uh, we're going to continue our, our series looking in Ephesians. Uh, last week, we looked at the first part of the household code, uh, where Paul was talking about marriages as the key kind of relationship that he wanted to make sure that people were taking care of uh, in, their, in their homes. And there are two other relationships that would be in most homes, and that they're what we're going to look at today. So we've been diving in to uh, Ephesians, and we've been looking particularly at this idea that we picked up from verses uh, 8 to 10 of chapter 5, where we're encouraged to find out what pleases the Lord, to live in such a way uh, that we're able to please the Lord. And so today, as we think about work relationships, as we think about parenting, and as we think about being kids, let's ask for God's help that we might live in a way that's pleasing to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that's been preserved for us, for this letter. We ask now that you might cause it to change us, that you might convict us, and that, Father, our lives might be lived more and more in pleasing ways to you. Where we're wrong, Father, please cause us to repent and change us, Father, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to dive in, but first, a little bit of background, a little bit of background to what the story is in what would be a typical Roman house. And now, for most of us, we haven't been to a Roman house, understandably, uh, because we don't live 2,000 years ago. Uh, let's, let's hear a little bit about the background to a Roman house. So, does anyone know what this is? It's not a sea lion, it's bigger than that. Sorry? Uh, elephant seal, yes, massive. To give you an idea of how big it is, when you have a fully grown one of these, they are f- up to 4,000 kilos. To give you an idea of how much that is, that's two Commodores. That is a very, very large animal. Now, when they land on the beach, uh, there, are, there are more females than males. And what they do, this, this, this guy is called a beach master. Okay, And what he does is he owns part of the beach and basically corrals off all the other females that are there. They're my females. And if another one wants to come and mate with them, they have a massive fight and basically the biggest, heaviest one gets the most of them. It is incredibly dominant, powerful, overwhelming kind of animal. That's, that's what it is. Now, that's not a million miles away from the picture of what we call uh, the pata familias, uh, the head of the household in a Roman house. They're utterly dominant. So the senior male in a Roman household was utterly dominant, dominant over everybody else in their house. It wasn't a democracy. You didn't have a vote. What the pater familias said absolutely went. That was it. More than that, they had a thing that they called, this is your Latin lesson for today, uh, patria potestas, which basically means it's the father's power. And that essentially meant he could say, do whatever he would like. And one of the examples of this would be, if there was a new child born into the household, what they would do is they would take the child, so his wife has a child, they would take the child and lay it at the feet of the father, and he could either pick it up and accept it into the family, or leave it there, and it would be taken outside and left outside. Now, that, yeah, you're starting to get the feeling of, of, of just what sort of power. On top of that, in the house, there were slaves. And slaves were owned people. And he had full charge over them as well. So the, the important thing to hear, as we hear about fathers in this, 
in general, if they were the head of the household, they were absolutely dominant. That was the going culture of the time. What about children? Well, my, my reflection reading uh, the background on children was that they were like wine. Uh, their value increases with age. Okay? So if you're a young child, you're not very valuable. And the reason for that wasn't necessarily because Romans hated children, although I'm not sure I conclude that they absolutely loved them. But the idea was there was so much infant mortality, up to 25%, that people didn't invest in connecting with their kids simply because they might not be around. And so as they got older and older, they would become more and more valuable. And obviously, if they're the firstborn male, they're very valuable. Uh, if they're the, 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 the female children, what they would try and do is try and marry them off. Uh, to give you an idea of what age they might be married off, they might be married off at 12. Boys became men around the age of 15 to 17, and they would change their toga from one that had a, a stripe on it to the adult's toga, and then they'd, then they'd sort of graduate to the more important kind of responsibilities. Generally, they were either educated by their dads or by a slave who was kind of hired in to do the job. Uh, girls sometimes did, but not all the time. Their education was run by threat and intimidation. If you threaten them, if you beat them, that's how they'll learn. Sound like a good way to run a school? And basically, they didn't have books to study in. They would have a wax tablet that they could scratch something in. But basically, the way you learnt was totally by rote. In other words, you learnt it until it was stuck in your head and you could say it back. And if you didn't remember it today, we'll beat you until you know it tomorrow. Sounds encouraging and affirming, doesn't it? So that's children. What about slaves? Well, the best, the best analogue I can get for slaves is that they were valued as appliances. They're a thing that you own to do a job. And some of you might have vacuum cleaners that you love because they're really good. And some of you kick the vacuum cleaner because the cord doesn't get sucked back in the way it should or whatever. No, you love your vacuum cleaners, don't you? Suffice to say, there were different levels of commitment to them, but they were always viewed separately to personhood in that real sense. You're my possession, you do a job, and again, how were they motivated? On the whole, they were controlled by threat and intimidation. So I can withhold things from you. So even uh, the, the head of the household could say, yes, you slave can marry you slave. He, he had the power to allow that. But he could also at the same time, if he wanted to discipline, say, we're going to break that family up and we're going to send this guy away. And he'll never see his kids and his, his wife again. My possession, he did the wrong thing, he's gone. Are you getting a sense of the way a Roman household worked? It worked underneath the head of the household and everyone else found their place underneath. It's in that context that Paul is writing. I want you to notice that as he writes, he writes to husbands, he writes to wives, he writes to fathers, he writes to kids, he likes, writes to slaves, he writes to masters. Do you know when he writes the letter, the idea is that the letter, just as we've just had it done uh, uh, by Bev and by Joy, the idea is it's read out in church. Here's the bit that we'll just miss. They're all in church to hear it. Do you get it? So the master is sitting next to the slave. 
the husband is sitting next to the wife. The master and the slave, the child and the parent, they're all in church together. Isn't that amazing? Particularly given the view of society that we've seen, already something incredible was happening in the Christian church. They were sitting together in church to hear the letter read. I want you to remember from last week, if you weren't here last week, this will be the first time, but if you remember from last week, the idea is that there is reciprocal but not symmetrical love and respect. I'll sort of explain what that means. The idea is everyone has a responsibility to one another, but it's not exactly the same. So the wife's responsibility to the husband isn't the same as the husband's responsibility to the wife. They both have to care and love and respect, but they do it differently based on who they are. That'll continue in what we're seeing today. Well, let's follow Paul as he addresses each of these groups uh, in turn. As we get to children, I, I was just reflecting about kids in Australia. And I think we actually have to do some work before we get to the text, because we have some barriers in Australia about how we hear the Bible say we should care for kids. The first, I think we have two absolutely opposite things that we do with kids in Australia. This is just my reflection on our society. You can tell me whether you agree or disagree. But, but I think at one level we're seeing increasingly reported inside churches terribly, but also massively throughout our community, abuse happening to kids. Yeah, that's what our Royal Commission is revealing. It's a despicable evil. It really is a despicable evil. And so at one end, we've got terrible abuse happening to children in our, uh, in our society. On the other side, I think we've got a thing which is akin to idolatry happening with our kids. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Parents who sacrifice everything for their kids... The altar is education, advancement and care of our kids is above everything else. Now, I want to say to you, love your kids, and we're going to hear that in the text here. But when we lift our kids up beyond everything else and make them the thing, we can't reprimand them, we have to give them everything that they need all the time, we have to love and feed and well, you do keep loving and feeding them, but, but we, you know, oh, of course you can have that, yes, you can do that, yes, I want to make sure you have every opportunity. I think in Australia, bizarrely, these two things coexist. At one level, a terrible disregard for our kids. At another level, a terrible exhortation of our kids beyond the, what is actually right and proper. Does that resonate, resonate in any way? Well, let's think about how the Bible talks about how kids and parents should relate. I thought I should read this rather long quote from Romans. It's going to intrigue you. I want you to hear Paul's talking about what's wrong with godless people. Okay? And I want you to listen to this list and then be shocked by the bit I've highlighted at the end. So it says in Romans, Romans 1.28, Furthermore, this is talking about godless people, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they might do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Now, if I asked you to pick out what's the odd one in that list, what would it be? Surely, surely it's disobey parents, isn't it? 
No, you're sitting there stunned. So it's here Sunday morning. I think that's odd, isn't it? One of the heights of disobedience and wickedness is to disobey parents. And so, let's have a look at what Paul says then uh, in this passage to children. I want you to open up Ephesians uh, chapter 6, and we're going to have a look at uh, verses 1 to 3 here, page 1177 in uh, your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 6. He says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may uh, enjoy long life on the earth. In verse 1, children are told to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord. Because you're in the Lord, we want you to obey your parents. It's out of love for Jesus. Obey your parents for Jesus. Obey your parents for Jesus. Now, I'll just put a little side note in for those of you who were here last week in the sermon on marriage. I want you to note the word obey did not turn up between husbands and wives. Here, with parents and children, it is you need to obey them. You need to listen to what they say and you need to do it. You need to do it because you choose to do it. You offer it to God out of love for Jesus. Obey your parents for Jesus. Then we see in verse 2, it's incredible, isn't it? He quotes uh, from Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number 5. I'm sure the parents' favorite command, yes? Uh, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Isn't it brilliant? There's a rightness, a goodness to obedience and rather than uh, in, the, in the Old Testament where it said you may live long in the land, now Paul is generalizing it to Christians everywhere, not just Jews. And he's saying, if you do this, God will honor your honoring of him by causing things to go well with you and to give you long life. Now, does everyone who honors their parent live long? Does everyone who dishonors their parent die quickly? No, probably thankfully for our kids, they get to make it a little bit further on in their lives. But the general principle is it will be a blessing to you that will overflow into your life if you show obedience to your parents. And those of you who have done this and practiced this, maybe you can bear testimony uh, to the goodness uh, of this promise. Well, Paul turns from children. Children, you've got your responsibility. Now he picks up the phone and says, Fathers, you're on the line. I have you on the line, fathers, and here's the word for you. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, just think about how much power was in the hands of these fathers. And I think we're just so comfortable in our worldview that we do not hear how revolutionary this is. He's saying to parents, to fathers in particular, tone it down. You cannot dominate and intimidate your kids. It's not right. And so there's actually a far more beautiful picture of parenting than the beach master there 
a beautiful, caring one. And so he says, don't exasperate your children in cynicism. And we were having a discussion in our life group during the week on this passage. When do I know when I've crossed over to exasperating? I was sharing the story that some older Christian kids, friends of ours, uh, the dad said he was disciplining his kids and the kids said, Dad, it says in the Bible here you can't exasperate me. Now that's a bit cheeky, isn't it, really? And remember last week we talked about there's actually a dress and you don't use somebody else's address to them. Remember? So husbands, you can't hold your wife to account. Wives, you can't hold your husband to account by pointing the Bible to them and shaking it in their face. Same here. Kids, you're not empowered to shake this back in the face of your parents. Parents, how do we know when we're exasperating our kids? When we've crossed over from doing it for their good, reprimanding them for their good, and we're doing something for our enjoyment, or out of spite, or out of anger and frustration. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? There is a line, isn't there? There's a line between appropriately dealing with your kids and something that crosses over into exasperation, where you're baiting your kids. You're winding them up. Don't do that. Do educate them. Have a look at this. There's an amazing counterpoint. Uh, Don't exasperate your children. Have a look at verse 4. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Actually, don't exasperate in cynicism. Actually, fathers, here's what we want you to do. We want you to educate in Christ. Dads, your job isn't just to teach your son how to swim, how to fire a bow and arrow or till the land or build a table. That's not the only thing that you're supposed to do. But actually, in this Roman world, dads, invest in your kids so that they may know Jesus. That's somebody else's work, isn't it? I can pay someone to do that. Well, not even pay them. I can buy someone to do that. Now, the danger in this world was that they could outsource it to someone else. It's not my job, it's somebody else's job. Do we have a similar danger today? Yes, we do, don't we? Particularly for those in Christian education, we can go, well, I've paid for my kid. Isn't this very interesting? I've paid for somebody else to teach my kids about Jesus. Or let's say they're not in Christian education. Let's say that you've brought them along to to New Life Kids today. Well, I sent my kids out. I I assume when I'm I'm in here and I don't see them for 45 minutes that something good is happening to them. So job done. We can't outsource responsibility for bringing our kids up in the knowledge of the Lord. So dads need you to get involved. Need you to be responsible for bringing your kids up. Now some of you are sitting here and thinking, I don't know the first thing about how to do that. We would love to help you. We would love to help you. We'd love to give you resources. You might be thinking, I've had a chat with a couple of the blokes here, and they say, look, my wife's much better at this than I am. In which case I'd say, Dad, why don't you take a lead in encouraging your wife to do that? It's not about saying that your wife can't help. It is about you taking an interest and not just outsourcing it. So do educate them in Christ. And can I say this? Do discipline them in care. It's not about don't exasperate your children, right? It's only ice creams and lollies all day for you, kids, because that would be good parenting, wouldn't it? What did Hebrews say? It was absolutely beautiful if you listen to it. Uh, It it was um, absolutely stunning in here. Uh, It says, 
Uh, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. Your discipline shows your love. If you're disciplining without exasperation, you are showing love. Dads, don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. So kids, practical application time, if you're a child, obey your parents, but choose to do it out of love for Jesus. Choose to do it out of love for Jesus. Dads, get started in teaching. And if you don't know what to do, we love, 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 love to help you. You might even just start by saying, I'm going to pray with my kids before they go to bed. And all we'll do is we'll give thanks for one thing that happened today and we'll pray for something that will happen tomorrow. Just start doing that. Mums, can I say there are are mums here today who are doing this job on their own. You are trying to bring kids up and there isn't a dad on the scene. Can I say to you, Please teach and discipline your kids. We would love to support you here at church and we want to encourage you. This passage isn't about disempowering you, saying you can't do that job. We're sure you're doing an extraordinary job just getting through. But we'd love to encourage you. This discipline and upbringing in the Lord is absolutely a priority for our children. Fourthly, can I say if you're an older child, as in most of us sitting here, and you still have your parents living can I encourage you to care for them with honour? I think once we come from being little kids to adults, I think the obey is replaced with honour. Honour your father and mother. Probably not doing everything that your mum and dad say all the time. It is important that we take care of them. Have a listen to this a little bit in, uh, in 1 Timothy uh, here. It says this, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. You want to know how to honour your older parents? Care for them. Look after them. Interestingly enough, probably, it's not just outsource it. Let's turn to slaves. Second part of the reading here. Let's turn to slaves. I want you to note, as we do this, we're going to think about wage and salary workers. Um, They're not the same as slaves, are they? You might say, I'm working for the man. You might say, my mortgage is my boss. You might say all sorts of things like that. I'm a slave to my mortgage or something like that. Guess what? You're actually not a slave. Not not in the sense that you're an owned object. You're somebody that is owned by someone else at their total discretion. That's not the case, is it? But what I want us to do is to see what can we learn about attitude uh, from this passage, understanding that there is a difference between uh, wage and salary earners and slaves. I love this guy. Uh, So uh, here's a picture of a bloke uh, starting his first day of work. And I imagine that he didn't think anyone was watching. Yeah? Yeah? So, so here he is, first day of work, no one's watching me. I might just have a little bit of a sleep, I think. So he has a sleep. Uh, did he get away with it? Uh, no, 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 he did not. 
uh, he ended up on the news because what happened was his workers, found, his co-workers found him asleep. They all got behind him. Someone took a selfie with him and all of them, posted it to social media. It went viral. And this is the picture on uh, USA's Today program, the day after he started work. Fabulous. How's that for a start? Now, what was the story? I assume he thought he could get away with it because no one was watching. And in the end, half of America was watching, which is a little bit sobering, uh, to, say, uh, to say the least. That's, I assume it's a funny workplace. So if he wakes up, it probably is a nice place to work because they're not looking too cruel, are they? They didn't tape him down or anything like that. If he wakes up. Yes, I don't think he's dead, Russ, but he does look out of it, doesn't he? All right, well, let's have a look what uh, the Bible says here to slaves. Have a look with me at verses 5 to 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. This is such a transformative set of instructions. Slaves, consider Jesus as your boss, as working for the Lord. So when you go to work, it's not just, I'm working for, insert name here. Actually, The work I do here is for my Lord. That's who I'm working for as I work here. What do you think that might transform in your work world? What would be different if you found yourself working for Jesus and not just for your boss? Consider Jesus as your boss. I think what happens when we do that is suddenly the secular versus sacred is gone. Let me explain what I mean. Sunday morning, you come here and we, we, uh, Al Stewart talks about a thing called the car park miracle. Have you heard of this? The car park miracle is that you've, you've been having a fight at home, the kids have been ratty, you pile into the car, you get to the car park at church and then everyone goes... You walk in here, brush their hair as they're walking in, you walk in here... We're all good, you walk outside again, and then everything's just back to normal. And so there's this wonderful holy bubble around church time, and then you go back to the rest of your life. So sacred here, secular, everything else, right? I think what can happen is we can believe the holiness happens at least twice a week. Okay, happens on Sunday, happens on Wednesday night for life group, or Thursday if you have a Thursday life group, or Friday if you have a Friday life group, two times a week, or, and maybe if you come to the first Friday feast uh, on a Friday night, it happens there as well. So now we've got a little bit of sacred, and then the rest of our life is lived like there is no God without his priorities in it. I think once we start saying, actually, my through the work, through the week work, if I'm, if I'm blessed to be employed... If I'm at school, if I'm a kid, uh, my through-the-week stuff isn't actually secular, it's sacred. What I'm doing here, my attitudes, my actions, my language, what I do and say, how I treat others is out of love for Jesus, who is the Lord of this time as well. 
So there is no downtime in our holiness. Verse 8 says, God has a great super plan. Did you see this? Have a look with me. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. I don't know what kind of reward that's going to be. But I look forward to finding out on the day when I meet Jesus. And I suspect he will say, Lord, please help this to be true. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Is that the reward? Probably. Hearing my my saviour affirm me, that will be a joy. Elsewhere, Paul says his reward is seeing the people that he has brought to the Lord. Whatever it is, work hard. It says God won't miss it. He will reward you. So that's slaves. What about masters? The absolute dominant alpha male in the household. What are masters told? Have a look with me at verse, uh, verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Live to please your boss. If you're a boss here, if you've got someone working for you, live to please your boss. You are never the top of the pile. Isn't that encouraging? You're the global CEO. You're the head of insert something here. Or maybe you're just the lead hand somewhere. In your world, you might be top of the pile. But you are never top of the pile because you are always serving your master who is over you and them. So live to please your boss. Cast aside intimidation. Do not use your positional power to intimidate. It's unworthy of you and it's dishonouring to God. Respectfully care for those under your authority. So treat your slaves in the same way. Love them. They are not a good and chattel. They are actually somebody who, before God, who shows no favoritism, is standing next to you before the cross of Christ. Workers, transform your thinking about your work ethic. What would be different if I was working for Jesus? Bosses, transform your thinking about your employee care and motivation. Why am I motivating them? I don't want fear and intimidation to be the motivator. I need to change that environment if you're responsible for others. And what about the rest of us who aren't mentioned here? Well, actually, we're told to serve our master wholeheartedly because we are slaves to Christ. Have a listen to this. Paul says uh, in Romans 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart from the gospel of God. The word there is actually slave. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Have a look underneath it in uh, 1 Corinthians. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. Were any of you here born free? Yep, every one of you. Very good. Congratulations, you're Christ's slave. You're Christ's slave. You need to live your life out honouring to your master. So where do our hearts need to change? Well, if you're a father or a master, you need to give up being a lord. If you're a child or a slave, you need to give up being a rebel. Stop being lords, stop being rebels.
What about practically speaking? Let me give you three things. We need to think about our speech. Whatever level you're at, our words are the overflow of our heart. Because we have Jesus installed, we are going to be people who build with our words, who honour with our words, who educate and exhort. Change your speech. Secondly, what's the motivation for you doing this? We're trying to please our master. Please your master. Because you love him. Because he saved you. Lastly, trust. Trust that the Lord sees and reward fairly every one of your actions. It's said in, in uh, Ephesians 5, 8 to 10. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we've found out some more today about how we should please you, that you would help us as parents, as children, as workers, as bosses. Father, that we might live in a way that's pleasing to you. Change what is wrong. Build what is right in us, Father, that we might live for your honour and glory. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.